Welcome to The Pit Stop, your monthly tune-up with refining experts. As usual, I'm Doug Aswell, your host, and I'm here to bring a new topic this month. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about effluent treating best practices, and we're going to have two of our experts, Kate Smith and Randy Peterson, join us to talk about uh, the effluent uh, section of the of the refining uh, process. You know, a clean engine leads to better performance on the racetrack, but also in the uh, plant performance of your alkylation unit. And Randy and uh, Kate are going to join us in talking about keeping your existing equipment clean and running smoothly. The topics we're going to be talking about are caustic water wash, uh, acid alkaline wash, alumina treating, and coalescing as well. And on to our next pit stop. So here we go. Let's get this uh, podcast going. I've got Randy and I've got Kate. You know, some of you have already seen some of our previous uh, podcasts over this last year and a half or so. Uh, but uh, just in case we have some new folks that are on with us today, uh, Kate and uh, and then Randy, let's uh, introduce ourselves just for a moment, just to to get everything going here. Okay. Yeah, I'll go first. I'm Kate Smith. I'm in the business development and strategy lead position for our aftermarket business. So all mm -hmm. of our existing customers might know me. Um, I often handle a lot of these inquiries around net effluent treating. I'd say probably three quarters of my inbox pertains to effluent treating. So I'm no stranger to this subject. Cool. Excellent. And I'm, yeah, I'm Randy Peterson. I'm the alkylation technology manager. I've been dealing with effluent treating for my whole career, which has been about 32 years. So a lot of questions, a lot of answers. So, so it makes you a jack of all trades and alkylation to, to some extent? I think so. You know, the interesting thing about effluent treating is we keep learning stuff even after 32 True. years. True. Yeah. I, just like uh, in my job too, I keep learning things all the time. So that's always a wonderful thing. So I know we're going to talk about effluent treating best practices and talk about stuff like uh, uh, the acid, uh, alkaline wash, caustic water wash, alumina treating and coalescing, you know, and when I first saw this topic, I thought, oh yeah, we've talked about a lot of stuff with using water for scrubbing and stuff. So I was under the impression this was going to be about the wastewater effluent. This is actually about product effluent. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So off of our reaction zone, we have an effluent stream that's all of our alkalid, all of the isobutane that hasn't been reacted, and we need mm -hmm. to get some of the acidic species that are potentially left over or carried over from the reaction zone. We need to neutralize those. So in previous podcasts, we talked about the alkylation production process. So this mm -hmm. is the stream coming off of that alkylation reactor, going on for further purification, and then putting the alkylation product back into the refinery for use uh, to make other product. Is that- uh, yeah, To blend into the gasoline. To blend into yes. gasoline, right. Okay, right. All right. And, so and for those of you, for those of you that are familiar with HF alkylation, they don't really have an effluent treating system. They let the acid go to the distillation tower mm -hmm. and they separate it out later. In our unit, we really have to get these acidic components out before mm -hmm. it hits the, the DIV or you're gonna have problems that will- We'll right. Ideally, you would leave all of your acid in the reaction system and you don't mm -hmm. have to deal with that. But and, and we've learned a lot over the years, so I might talk a little bit about different generations here. But 
We used to think that there were potentially some esters within the hydrocarbon stream, esters being reaction intermediates. Okay. And, and potentially they were stabilized somehow within the hydrocarbon. And so we thought we needed to wash with acid within the effluent treating system to try and get those out of the hydrocarbon mm -hmm. and then neutralize with alkaline water and move on through, through the system that we'll soon talk about. Right. So found, are the esters more typically soluble in the acid portion and not the other hydrocarbon portion? Yes. Is that some of the acid soluble material we've talked about before? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and over the years, we've learned a lot more. We did some significant testing with the university here about three years ago or maybe mm -hmm. even five years ago now. And we found that the esters do prefer to stay in the acid phase. So what we had previously hypothesized was that they were in the hydrocarbon and we'd be treating them here. But we did find um, beyond the esters, there are actually these tiny droplets. We're saying like sub five micron droplets of acidic species. And furthermore, they don't like to agglomerate. So they are very spread out. I think the term that was used was a colloidal suspension. Oh, so yeah. they're very like spread out. Like a Brownian fluid or, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Extremely spread out, don't like to coalesce. They cannot be coalesced within physical coalescing media. So yes, we do have media in our systems. I, I, I do wanna point out that even in the um, acid settler, we have media and that's for more of a bulk separation that will not be able to address these small acidic species and hence why we have to have effluent treating. Uh, and I mean, we, we, yeah, we were testing samples that were, had sat, sat on, the, on the shelf for six months. Mm -hmm. And six months later, they still had these three micron droplets. And exactly. it's the reason why it's considered to be Brownian suspension, because mm -hmm. normally gravity would settle those droplets out because they're heavier than the, uh, than the alkalate product. Yeah, they're they're three, time, three times heavier. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. So we learned a lot through that process. I also want to highlight, too, that if you are processing propylene, then there's probably a higher amount of these smaller droplets that are mm. created just due to the reaction. Mm -hmm. So often if you have high propylene content, we're talking, you know, over 30% as a percent of your total olefin base, then you likely have a lot of treating issues or treating, you have a lot of opportunity for treating within your unit. Let me put it that way. Sure. Um, so we do know that propylene processors are often the ones that are contacting us more regularly with issues. Um, so I, I just wanted to lay that groundwork before we maybe got into what the system looks like. Sure. And, and I think in one of our previous podcasts, we talked about, you know, propylene being much more available in the market and relatively inexpensive. So some of our, the, of the refiners out there have been switching to a higher and higher amount of propylene. So this becomes a bigger and bigger issue that right. needs to be looked at more deeply, right. I think. And uh, right. And our lab will see more of a rag layer. So uh, our lab, luckily they have glass settlers, which most of you guys out there don't, but, <laughs> but in a glass settler, they can see more of a fogginess Mm -hmm. uh, near the top, you know, of acid mm -hmm. uh, near the top of the reactor. So propylene is going to have just higher acid carryover in general, everything else equal. Yeah. And Randy, right. didn't you say something one time about uh, when you have a lot of acid soluble uh, materials in the acid portion that it colors the acid a reddish color or right. a little bit more of a red color. So if you're going to higher propylene, it sounds like you'll see more of that red color in the acid portion in the settler in that viewport that some have in their process as well. Exactly. And okay. a, kind of another thing, just to keep it all interesting for all of us, you know, that are mm -hmm. 
or trying to do the research mm -hmm. is we do find in some cases esters. And those are usually in units that are operated poorly. Mm -hmm. Maybe that they're running double what they're originally designed for, or maybe they're running a lot of propylene, or maybe they don't have a lot of mixing. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing, in some cases, we do see esters. All right. So what are we looking at as far as equipment layout and that kind of thing, Kate? Yeah, I can show um, once I get my screen sharing here. Then... So the alkylation unit sits to the left of the net effluent uh might want to point it out or whatever so make sure, sure yeah right so there here's, okay here's our net yep. effluent and you know with the stratco system this is coming off of the suction trap flash drum if you mm -hmm. have our true system so the effluent comes through the tube bundle and then flows into the suction trap flash drum where the light ends are split off onto the into the refrigeration section and then this outlet and isobutane liquid hydrocarbon comes onto the treating area. Okay. If, right. if you have a Kellogg unit, it's probably coming off the end of the reactor. Yeah. And what we see is we do see more um, esters and more acid carryover at times with those units because yeah, they're doing a lot in one vessel. Right. So we actually have two systems. This one is what we call our wet treating system. And this has been the legacy recommendation. So mm -hmm. Your unit might look exactly like this, or it might look slightly different than this because there have been different generations. Right. Probably the first generation, there was no acid vessel at all. Mm -hmm. So you likely would have just seen a caustic wash vessel, hopefully followed by a water wash. And that caustic was just intended to neutralize any of that acid. So then we saw, you know, if you have a unit upset, there's the potential for high acid carryover into this vessel. And that would be a high level of neutralization happening with a, a strong caustic. So then we added in an acid coalescer. Really back then it was an acid wash coalescer where we would wash the stream with a bulk acid phase intending to contact what we thought was that ester content and getting that to drop out before moving on to the alkaline water wash drum. But our most recent findings as we've already alluded to, um, those those small droplets, it's a statistical issue. You can't quite contact with a bulk phase these tiny droplets that are very spread out and don't want to agglomerate. Mm -hmm. They're actually more effectively treated within the alkaline water wash drum. So instead, we now have this acid coalescer vessel that really is a, a wide spot in the line to allow for any sort of unit upsets to settle out any bulk acid phase that we have. Gotcha. If you have a lot of propylene, you could get, you like we said before, you could get more carryover of acid and or esters. Okay. Yeah, because those, those intermediates act as a stabilizer for the emulsion, and that's what causes that increased acid carryover for propylene systems. Gotcha. All right. So after the acid coalescer system, you move into the alkaline water wash drum, mm -hmm. and that's intended to neutralize any of those acidic species like we were talking about. Um, Randy, I don't know if you maybe want to highlight some of the temperature concerns or opportunities here. So yeah, typically we design these for about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So the circulating alkaline water, it might be hotter to, to provide that heat, but the drum itself yeah, generally, right in here. yeah, 120 Fahrenheit, which is about 50 degrees C. Um, we, we say that's kind of like the minimum and that's sort of a good design. And then typically we say, Use more heat if you need it, but not if you, you know, if you don't need it, there's no reason to add more heat to this system. Uh, meaning that if you have propylene, you know, we talk to customers, they'll, they'll find that their optimum uh, is around 140 degrees Fahrenheit. 
or something like that. We might design the unit for 160. And what we hear is some people say, oh, you designed the unit for 160, we're running at 160. Well, that's probably too hot if you don't need it to be that hot. Um, I think the way we look at how, why, why it's better, why heat is a important variable, you know, it's like washing your clothes in cold water or, you know, versus hot water. Um, the viscosity of the water phase is much less. The, um, you know, the, just the transport properties, like the uh, surface tension is less as well. So it just does a better job cleaning and breaking those particles up into smaller particles, having more, more surface area for the neutralization to occur. Right. And, and solubility is there too. I mean, the higher mm -hmm. the temperature, the better the solubility of a lot of different species in water. Yeah, so. and, and, the, and that's kind of another problem too, because the hotter you go, and the more water you're going to get going to the DIB, which could carry more uh, stuff with right, it. Right. And then also the greater chances of flashing on the way to the DIB, which is mm -hmm. higher velocity and potentially more, more corrosion at that point. So, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of heat is, is, you know, great, but too much heat um, can cause more problems. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then the water wash coalescer downstream is just intended to wash any of those caustic salt or in any of the remaining high pH material out of the stream prior to going to the deisobutanizer, which is directly downstream here of, of this coalescer. So a yeah. few things, uh, a few things to highlight here would be static mixers and the coalescing media. So I did want to mention just on the static mixer side, these can be optimized. And um, you can work with us at DuPont to optimize those. We work with Solzer and we work with Coke Glitch um, to optimize these systems. But you could be seeing issues where your momentum ratio is off within those mixers and you aren't getting adequate mixing of the two phases. We've seen that a lot. Um, you know, your circulation rate, your injection rate of caustic and water, all of these pieces kind of add up to an optimized system design. So if there are any concerns or issues you're seeing, I would definitely recommend you to reach out to one of us and we can start to evaluate the system and recommend some optimization um, areas for you. Yeah, the, the first static mixer, whether that's the alkaline water wash mixer or if there's a cost, if it's a caustic wash mixer, to me, that's the most important mixer. And I, and I don't think you can put too much mixing or get too much mixing out of that mixer, as long as you have an effective water wash downstream that can wash the salts out. Sure. So if, if you get a lot of energy in that mixing, then generally uh, everything else is really easy. So, so I like to go a little overboard on mixing uh, rather than underboard on that first mixer. Are, are these uh, motor-driven mixers or are these truly just static inline mixers? Static. Yep. Okay. They're just static right. inline yeah. mixers. Yeah, these are static. And, and we like the ones that are designed for immiscible fluids. There's some out there that are really made for like mixing chocolate syrup and milk. Uh, like if they're, they're a helical coil type, those do not do a good job with, with you know, with, um, with immiscible fluids like hmm. water and, and hydrocarbon. Okay. Uh, so you really want something that's very intense mixing uh, just to, to get a good uh, uh, neutralization effect. Yeah, lots and of so twists maybe, and winds through it as it goes throughout, I, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe to translate your comment to Randy is that the DP cannot be too high as long as you can still pump through it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, the issue is really when you get low DP in these mixers, which can happen pretty often. 
Mm-hmm. Um, these can tend to wear. So we do now recommend Hastelloy within the service, both in the mixing sleeve and in the elements themselves. But if you have some other uh, mismatched metallurgies or, or issues here, then you can see some uh, degradation of the mixing elements over time. So you need to monitor that DP just to make sure that the mixer is in good shape. Basically pull it, put a micrometer on it, check to see if it's still close to its original spec and all that kind of stuff. We can actually, uh, we get pretty good results by people just using a simple x-ray in the field. Um, You can see pretty good pictures of the elements inside because these are just you know, little chevron packing, they kind of look like small coalescers, <laughs> oh. that, that same sort of flexi chevron design that are, you know, the crimp angles and all of that are, are specialized for the service. But with the x-ray, you can look through and see as long as they're, you know, still in place. Um, we have had issues with backflowing of mixer elements. You can get a, a simple check while you're still operating to make sure that that's adequate. And hopefully you just have a good delta P instruments. Mm-hmm. So if at the right. beginning of the run, it's 12 pounds. And now at the same flow rate, it's only eight pounds. It means, mm-hmm. you know, it probably opened up inside. But Something's yeah. not right. Yep. Yeah, right. But, I, but, but go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I can't stress enough that a field, field monitor DP is near useless in this application. If it's something that you're like checking on rounds, yes, a spot check to make sure that there is still a DP, um, a recognizable DP in the system is valuable. But if you're getting something that's very inconsistent or just think about the capability of reading a gauge, you know, even if it's from zero to 25 pounds, you're probably only getting down to, you know, a one PSI difference when you're going through and reading it in the field. So online DP is far superior to a field gauge. Right. Yeah. If there's two gauges and they're both at 300 pound gauges and you yeah. Can't, yeah, then, then you can't tell the difference. <laughs> exactly. But if, it's a, but if it's a Delta P gauge, that's trendable in the DCS mm-hmm. and it's not damaged or leaking or what have you, that's a, that's a yeah. great check. Yep. Good deal. So All with right. that, that's the wet system. Um, we can touch briefly on the dry system as well. Sure. Yeah. We have a few units out there and, and this is, you know, that have the alumina treating systems. Um, they've always seemed to do a little better than the wet systems historically, meaning that because it's dry, we're not adding water uh, to the stream going to the DIB. Uh, because you're not adding water to the DIB, you're not bringing it around to the front end of the unit. And that keeps your feed dry and corrosion typically is, is less in these units. If you have less water in your acid, it lasts longer and is less corrosive. So mm-hmm. these work kind of the same way. You have a coalescer to get out all the bulk acid or any upset acid. Uh, then you use uh, alumina, which is bauxite, basically a more refined bauxite. Sure. And what that does is it, it picks up the sulfur compounds. They adsorb onto the alumina. Mm-hmm. And you can either design these to just to dispose of the alumina. Alumina is pretty uh, inexpensive. And so many refiners just choose to run a treater for, let's say, six months or three months. And then at the end of that life, they just switch over to the other one mm-hmm. um, and dump, dump, rinse first just to get the pH above five, but then uh, dump that alumina. It's just it's non-hazardous waste at that point and then fill up after they're dumped, they, uh, they fill it up again with fresh alumina. 
Uh, the other way to do it is to have regen equipment, which is basically you wash the alumina that knocks off the sulfur compounds and then you dry it uh, and then top it up if, if you need to. Right. Uh, but, but generally our new units, we just do a, a dump because there's less CapEx involved. And it's, like I said, the alumina is uh, fairly inexpensive. And it is a, a chemisorption mechanism. So you are reacting the, the outer layers of the alumina over time. So it won't lose its structure immediately from you know a, a few months of usage. But over time, if you were to continue to regenerate it, you would have some potential issues. Sure. Some crumbling, some crushing, that kind of thing going on, I, was, I would suppose. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, this looks like a really simple system, the dry as compared to the wet, I mean, what kind of uh, breakout of percentage of, uh, of uh, units uh, do we see out in the field? Is it 50-50 or is it 75-25? What, what are we talking about? Oh, gosh, uh, 3%, <laughs> 97%. Oh, wow. About. Yeah, we only have four operating units with the dry treating. And that's mainly due to the fact that we have recently recommended the change in, in design, but it's also hard to get conversion from the wet system to dry system. People have tried to look at uh, converting their existing system, their wet system into a dry system. Sure. But, be but because you have horizontal vessels that really should be vertical, that's usually a, a non-starter. Right. And then it's, al it's also tough to justify, you know, adding something where what you have could be made to Works. work well. Yeah, right, right. So, but on a new plant, a uh, new alkylation unit, this would be definitely something sounds like we would recommend to go with a dry system uh, for ease of operation, it sounds like. Yeah, we're recommending them on the on the new units. The mm -hmm. older units, some of the, the new customers are a little bit shy of it. Uh, they, they understand the wet system um, and they've learned to be able to, to deal with it so they don't really want to try something new. Gotcha, uh, but... yep, that makes sense. Well, going back to the wet system, um, how do you know when uh, things are starting to go awry? I mean, what do you look for with the wet system to know, oh, we have some issues? Uh, I know we've talked about that with the actual alkylation reactor, but I'm assuming there's some similar things with the wet systems. Uh, so give me some information on that. I can take that one. So in terms of indicators for the unit while you are operating, we highly recommend that you monitor the DIB overhead pH and the DIB overhead uh, iron content. This is on the water stream coming off of the DIB overhead boot. Hmm. So your, your effluent flows through this effluent treating system and then goes to your deisobutanizer and any water that's present from that treating section, it'll, it'll go up in the tower because it'll flash off and then it'll um, condense within those condensers and end up in your overhead accumulator then you can sample the water off of that water boot and get an iron content and a pH. So low pH would indicate that you still have some acidic species present within the DIB. And what'll happen, those acidic species, they're heavy. So they'll actually fall to the bottom of the tower. They'll find the heat in the DIB reboiler and they will continue to polymerize on those tubes and create almost like an asphalt sort of a, a black tar substance, and they'll release SO2. SO2 will flow up the tower, find that water in your overhead, and it'll combine to make a really low strength acid. 
which will show up on your pH measurement. Yep. So that's one thing that you can monitor. You can also see too, if you have caustic flowing to the DIB, because another issue is that you might overcorrect. So now instead of properly washing out all the caustic, the alkaline water, within the, the water wash, you get caustic overflow and you might actually see a high pH in your DIB overhead. That's not as common because a lot of the salts would tend to plate out on the, on the trays of the column and then you just get the water going to the top, but it's, it's happened. And honestly, I, I wouldn't say that anything is out of the realm of possibility within the right. effluent treating system. And, and so one of the other things we're having people look at besides the DIB overhead water pH and iron content is conductivity, because mm -hmm. that's another indication our salts blowing through into the feed and, and getting them trained up into the overhead. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you have a lot of conductivity, that means you might be salting up around your feed tray, which could uh, cause your tower to flood. Yeah, so okay. that's conductivity, conductivity of the water in the water wash itself. So I would imagine that you're looking for corrosion on the, the boiler and also on the trays and then salt buildup on the trays, it sounds like, and during shutdown opportunities. Yeah, generally no corrosion during the run in the DIB reboiler because oh, it's dry. Okay. You, okay. Might cake, you might cake it with, with oh, the um, tar. acidic product, with the tar. Yeah, right. And unless, you, unless you online water wash to try to knock that off, that, then you might get corrosion. But generally what you'll see is a reduction in the heat transfer uh, coefficient ah, in your reboiler. Right. And if you're, if you do see that your reboiler does um, foul during the, mm -hmm. during the course of a run and it's, your, it's definitely your steam usage starts going up, I would assume. No, cause, cause you're still going to use the same amount of steam. Oh, you're just okay. going to use more and more area. So you have to look at how your reboiler is controlled. Mm -hmm. If it's condensate controlled, meaning that you have a level of condensate. Mm -hmm. And as you notice that, you know, at the beginning of the run for a certain duty, it's, 75% covered with, with condensate. But as you go on and on in, during your run, and now you're only 25% uh, covered with condensate, that means you're using more and more area for the same duty, gotcha. which, which means your uh, heat transfer is going down. Right. So another uh, way that, that refiners control their reboiler uh, duty is, is with, a, they just, with a steam trap, and they control the pressure inside the reboiler. So let's say at the beginning of the run that that pressure is fairly low, they have good heat transfer coefficient, but at the end of the run with the same uh, heat duty, they're running at a higher pressure. So if you monitor that pressure over time, you can see if you're fouling your reboiler. So I would encourage you, if, if you don't make it through a, a whole run to, uh, to be monitoring that, just so you know uh, that you have problems. And there are ways to do online water washes. Um, periodically to, to clean it. And you want to, if you're going to do that, you want to do that before it becomes a problem because once it's completely plugged up, uh, then, then it's going to uh, not be able to be cleaned online. You're going to have to shut down and, and actually pull the reboiler. And that's a lot more complicated. The whole bundle, I, I would suppose. Yeah, that's what I meant. The whole, yeah, the whole bundle. Yep. Yeah, and exactly. so far, Doug, we've pointed out a lot of issues that you can see from the DIB, but of course there are also indicators within the effluent treating system itself. So oh, sure. okay. you should be looking at pH levels in the alkaline water wash or caustic strength if you have a high strength caustic wash. Mm -hmm. um, some people even have a batch caustic wash. So how fast are you spending that caustic and having to replenish it? Mm -hmm. Like we were talking about conductivity in water wash. Um, 
There can also be foaming issues that you might run into. Um, if you have some sort of uh, significant acid reaching the caustic, it, it will actually sulfonate and cause like a shaving cream lather in that Ooh, system. Nice. And that's extremely hard to break. Mm -hmm. So you just have to eventually work that off of the system. Adding some hard water into the alkaline water wash will help break that sulfonation layer. So there are a lot of other <laughs> mechanisms that we could explore. And certainly if people have questions, uh, feel free to put them in the question line as we're talking here. Oh, yeah. And that reminds me, uh, if you do have any questions about our topic, uh, definitely click the uh, link at the bottom and put those in the Q&A session will be coming up uh, here in just a little bit. Uh, thank you for mentioning that, Kate. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, good. So you check conductivity, look for the condition of what's coming out as, as part of, I assume, the blowdown off of the unit as well and see the condition of it. It sounds like a, a series of grab samples from a couple of places, kind of like what we talked about with the alkylation reactor as well. Um, and, and further to what you know, Kate said too, is you can get foaming from different additives that are added to the water. Mm -hmm. so, so a lot of times refiners will use boiler feed water, uh, which will have filming amines uh, added in. <clears throat> One of those additives is cyclohexylamine uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's used, and we found that that can cause foaming issues. Um, but, but again, the softer the water, the more likely it is to foam, kind of like washing your hair in soft water. Right. Uh, you know, the suds take forever to, to leave, but if you use hard water, so a lot of times there's a Goldilocks amount of hardness. Sure. If it's too hard, the static mixers plug up, but if it's too soft or you have uh, other added chemicals in there, it, it foams. Actually, it's kind of the Goldilocks, you know, yeah. not too hard, not too soft, and yeah. then things usually work out well. So many other optimizations that yeah. can be performed on the wet system as well? Well, I want to jump to the dry because we're working with uh, oh, one okay. of the vendors, one of the vendors of alumina to make mm -hmm. a more effective alumina that oh, okay. either la lasts longer or is easier to you know regenerate or wash. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in a, in a better performing alumina, come and, and talk to us because um, I think, uh, you know, we've done some work in our lab and we've, we've learned some things about not all alumina is the same. Ah, okay. Uh, so, so there, there could be some benefits that, that could help save uh, the cost of, of using this alumina. Yeah, yes. And on the wet treating side, there are a lot of levers to explore. So I think we've already talked about quite a few of them, but optimizing mm -hmm. mixer design, uh, making sure that your water, your caustic, all of that, looking at potential impurities within that, that could be contributing to issues you're having downstream. Circulation rates is a big one. So what mm -hmm. uh, we have recommendations on the amount of caustic and water that you should circulate for these treating mechanisms. Temperature, I mean, the list is pretty long for wet treating. So the best recommendation I can say is just get in touch with us and we'll, we'll have sure. a conversation with you about your specific unit. Good deal. All right. Well, I think that seems to, to nail everything. So yeah. awesome. Well, hey, stick around, everybody. Uh, our question and answer session is coming up right now. And it's good to have everybody back with us, Kate and Randy. That was yes. a great discussion. I hope everyone uh, got something out of it. You know, I was sitting there watching and, <clears throat> excuse me, I was sitting there watching and there was one question, one eager person put their question in early on 
and nothing for a long time. Now we have like 11 uh, questions. So let's get right into them. Uh, one of these uh, is interesting because we mentioned it right at the end. And uh, you may want to talk about it a little bit more. But this person is saying it's more of a statement, but it leads to a question in my mind. Uh, we're having issues, uh, treating issues, that is foaming water wash uh, during this past year. And I'm, I know that, Randy, in your part of the discussion there, you mentioned about adding water that is a little bit more hard into the system to break up the foaming could be possibly a way to, to fix that. Uh, but kind of talk about that a little bit more. Maybe there's something you can mention to help uh, this individual out uh, mentioning this for their specific unit. Yeah, I think our standard is 20 to 50 um, ppm of hardness. Mm -hmm. And okay. that's probably a good, you know, if you're at 200, it's probably too thick. If it's zero or less than five, it's probably too soft with, yeah. with, with hardness. Um, yeah. And especially if you have, you know, chemicals that are added, as I mentioned before. Um, so if, if this particular refiner <laughs> went for 20 years, no foaming, and now mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're having foaming, you know, you got to ask yourself what, what changed there. What, yeah, what's different, right. Yeah. And, and like you said, maybe the water softener is working too well and you need to ease off on it or blend in some hard water to bring it up or check to see if that additive you mentioned is part of their softened water, right? What was the name of that again? Um, cyclohexylamine. It's, it's cyclohexylamine. a common, yeah, we found that kind of the hard way, troubleshooting like everything. Mm -hmm. And and this one refiner was, they the, the vendor, talked them into tripling the, the dosage of this stuff ah. to solve some corrosion problems. <clears throat> and all of a sudden the alkie was having a lot of foaming issues after that. Gotcha. And after troubleshooting, then we figured out that, you know, we weren't even looking for that at the, at the, at the beginning, but that's what it ended up being. So. Sure. I also, so <clears throat> oh, sorry. I wanted to bring up, um, I've had a few troubleshooting cases over the past month where I've had the question, do the static mixers contribute to, these separation issues when you have maybe a lather layer or something like that. And yes is the short answer, but it's because there's acid present that will sulfonate. So, so the root cause is that you have acid that somehow is not being treated properly, whether it's in the caustic wash or not being dropped out in the acid wash. And then that finds the caustic, it sulfonates because it's the, what is it? The sodium sulfate that will actually sulfonate with an aromatic. So, you have to have all of those things present to get that lather that we're talking about. <clears throat> but um, the, the static mixer end, I do want to point out, we've done testing in the lab where we've actually had to get to three parts water to one part hydrocarbon instead of our preferred one part water to three parts hydrocarbon. But when you flip that, that was the first indication we got where it was hard to separate the the caustic and the hydrocarbon phase so you really have to get way far out of the normal operation range to see any mm -hmm. sort of caustic entrainment in hydrocarbon so i did want to point that out in case others were wondering about that gotcha okay and, and one of the things too i like to add have to rewatch in that video we didn't really mm -hmm. mention but a lot of refiners so we typically design the dib overhead recycle to be a certain amount. Let's say it's 50,000 barrels a day. Mm -hmm. And when people turn down their unit, we really still want that to be 50,000 barrels a day, the DIB overhead recycle. Your IO might go up from eight to 10, but generally if you go down, then you have less flow going through your effluent treating system. 
and then the static mixers don't work as well. Mm -hmm. um, right. So we, we see that over and over again, where if they're running it at two thirds of their capacity, they lower that recycle rate to, the, to that same amount, but then the Delta P goes way down in the static mixers and the treating becomes bad. So we really tell people, keep that flywheel going. It's, it's basically a flywheel for the unit. So if you can keep that DIB overhead recycle at a constant, it makes this treating system, uh, you know, usually a lot easier to operate. Yeah, it just stabilizes it also, it sounds like. So it makes everything a lot easier to control. Um, while we're talking somewhat about metallurgy a little bit, uh, that reminds me that, uh, well, let me put it this way. Kate, during your discussion about uh, static mixtures, you mentioned the metallurgy of those static mixtures being recommended as Hastelloy. Well, this person's question is a little broader than that. Uh, they ask, what is the preferred piping and vessel metallurgy for water wash system? So almost everywhere it's carbon steel. Uh, okay. The exception being when you get that high temperature caustic <clears throat> that will be contacting with a potentially acidic stream that can cause some high temperature excursions or just sure. it, it's already high temperature. So we, I think in our standard design have maybe a, a couple feet in front of the static mixer, <clears throat> the full sleeve and elements of the alkaline water wash mixer or caustic wash, whatever your case might be. Right. And then all the way to the inlet of that vessel is what we deem to be Hastelloy piping. Okay. But the vessel itself with the phase separator in it, that can be carbon steel, it sounds like. Correct, because okay. the primary neutralization should occur within the static mixer. So Upstream. Yep. It, it's a quick reaction. And once that's contacted, it then flows on and you just need to separate in the coalescer. Okay. All right. That's the key right there where it transitions from acidic to neutral. Mm -hmm. That's where the corrosion occurs. So if you right. don't have good mixing, you can get corrosion downstream. So use alloy around that area to protect that section. The rest of it after that, no problem. Yep. I will point out too, we have seen Hastelloy failures in this in this service, but it's typically because they've gone way too far to the other end of high temperature. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe excursions into 170, 180 Fahrenheit at the mixer sleeve. And, gotcha. and that over time can cause some pitting issues and then it just slowly erodes. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what is the optimal acid water wash drum temperature to ensure neutralization of esters? Yeah, I think we, we covered that in the, in, in the talk. Mm -hmm. uh, 120 degrees F or 50 degrees C is typically our standard for the, for the alkaline water wash itself. Now, the, the water going around might be 160, 180 just to heat up the total so that the, the the average is 120 in that drum, if that makes sense. So the, right. the hydrocarbon comes in at 85 typically. And so you got to heat up the water phase hotter to, um, to get the total or the average to about 120. Uh, right. We also mentioned, you know, maybe if you run C4s, we might have designed the unit for 160, but probably you don't need to run that hot. <clears throat> Generally about 140 is, is what we're hearing people with a lot of propylene run. And that seems to work well. Gotcha. Yeah, I also want to point out that it depends on what stream you're heating to, because there are quite a few sites that actually heat the effluent stream. 
And we definitely don't recommend that because once you heat the effluent stream without caustic present, you have the potential of reacting that acid that's in the stream. Mm -hmm. So you can have corrosion issues, all, all sorts of things, oligomerization <clears throat> issues. So if it's the effluent stream you're looking at, we would not go that high. We would want you to get as high as possible, like, you know, to the 120 range. But um, it, it just depends. Again, every system is so specific. So I wanted to put mm -hmm. that out there. Yeah, and some units they have, they, they're mixed. So the caustic and the, the net effluent are already mixed. Then they right. go through heat exchanger. Yep. And that's right. a whole other set of challenges. But, but that works too if it's, if it's done correctly. Okay. Sort of similar in some of the veins of what we've been talking about. This person is asking a question. Uh, what is considered the optimal pH alkalinity and conductivity in acid water wash circulation? Yeah, so I can take some of that. Um, so it depends on what kind of vessel you have. We've been talking about caustic wash and alkaline water wash. Some will operate theirs as a high weight percent, not high weight percent, low weight percent, usually <clears throat> caustic, meaning three to 12 weight percent. Um, that being a batch range. So you might batch in at 12 and spin down to three. Typically the caustic wash would operate closer to that 12 weight percent the whole time. So that's caustic wash alkaline water wash, we're typically targeting a pH of 12. And the idea there being that you want to spend the full amount of your caustic that you can. So by spinning down to 12 pH, then your, your effluent stream is only at that 12 pH and you've gotten the maximum payout of that caustic. There's no detriment to spending at a higher uh, weight percent within the alkaline water wash. It's just a, a couple pieces. One, you're wasting caustic, so you're going to have right. an effluent stream with weight percent. And then two, you need to make sure that you have an adequate water wash downstream. So the water wash is the guard for the DIB so that you don't get any sort of salts going over. And so on conductivity, it also relates to whether or not you have a, wa a water wash downstream. So the final vessel before it goes to the DIB you don't want to see over 5,000 microsiemens per centimeter. That, that's the conductivity measure. Right. So if the alkaline water wash is your last vessel, that would be 5,000. But if you have an alkaline water wash followed by a water wash, then the alkaline water wash could be maybe 10,000 microsiemens per centimeter. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sorry if that sounded confusing, but we're just trying to address as many systems as possible. Yeah, and if that person has additional questions about that or wants more detail, certainly they could contact you or Randy about it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. and one other thing to add is caustic embrittlement. At, at 12 pH, we don't worry about caustic embrittlement, mm -hmm. according to our metallurgists, according to our experience. But above about 2 weight percent caustic at higher temperatures, depending on the metallurgy, then you have to start worrying about caustic and brittlement. So okay. every unit's different. We won't, don't want to tell you to run at 160 degrees and with strong caustic, and then you get caustic and brittlement problems. Right. So, so make okay. sure if you make changes, um, either, you know, ask us or your metallurgist first before you um, get in yeah, And I think we, we briefly touched on it during the, uh, during the pre-recording, but you also don't want to flash your DIB feed stream either. So it totally depends on what pressure you're at within this whole stream as to what temperature you might want to target and how high you can get there. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing, since the, the feed goes in about 90% of the way up the tower, incremental heat, almost mm -hmm. all of it, about 90% of it goes into the condenser and only about 10% of that incremental heat reduces the reboiler duty. 
So incremental heat there is not a energy, you know, it's not efficient uh, way to run it. So mm -hmm. uh, keeping it closer to the temperature that's in the tower at that point is, is more optimum. Gotcha. Uh, it was mentioned a little bit about uh, DIB overhead a little bit. Uh, so this person's question goes right into that. They are saying, are DIB overhead water pHs tested in the field and the lab? The field pH results consistently look good, but the lab pHs are often much lower. The lab samples are tested several hours after the sample is taking, taken. Excuse me. It is typical to see the overhead water react with air and pH drop over time. I, th I think what they meant is, is it uh, yes. uh, typical to see that happen over time? And if so, are the lab results still indicative of a treatment issue? We believe the, the field results, uh, just right when they're taken, that's really mm -hmm. the pH that the, you know, there is a temperature component to pH too. Of so, course, right. Um, you know, the hotter it is, the, I'm not sure which direction it goes, right? Right. Put me on the spot, but but yeah, but we believe because yes, it, in the lab, it will drop. There's oxidation reactions that occur. Mm -hmm. uh, people have tried to, you know, fill up the bottle as, as far as they can, or maybe, purge the sample bottle with nitrogen before they take the sample, but it still seems to oxidize over time. Right. Um, and that's also why we, we, we tell people to look for iron content too. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at pH um, and your pH is good in the field, but it's bad in the lab, but your iron content is good, meaning, you know, our target would be 10 ppm iron, but, you know, even 50 ppm iron is not that bad because there's such a small flow rate of water it takes a lot of iron to, you know, you're, you're not taking much iron out of the unit, even at 50 ppm. Right. So look at the iron, look at the trends of iron over time and look at the pH in the field. That's our, that's what we typically recommend. Gotcha. While we're still talking about DIV, this uh, person is asking something around it. Kate mentioned black acid sludge formation in the bottom of the DIB tower, which can release SO2 and cause reduced overhead pH. Uh, they say they missed hearing what is causing acid sludge formation. Could you run through that again? And what are the mitigations for it? Sure. So this is just a symptom of improper treating upstream. And it's any acidic species. So any of these droplets or um, reaction intermediates that aren't neutralized, mm -hmm. or even free acid, if it finds its way to the DIB, it's much heavier. It won't is not volatile, it will not flash, it will go down, it will find heat within the DIB reboiler right. and then continue to polymerize, oligomerize, oligomerize and then um, create this tar-like substance. So it's an indicator of whether or not you've reacted out all the acidic species through the caustic wash or affluent water wash. So maybe it sounds like increase your caustic in the acid wash section to get the acid content lower and then that relieves the reactable species that get into the uh, DIB tower. It sounds yeah. So like. all of the optimizations that we've talked about, optimizing yep. your yeah your circulation ratios, your uh, your yep. mixer DP, all of that. Yep. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. Good deal. Hopefully that uh, uh, gives a satisfactory uh, answer for that. Um, while we're st still talking about DIB, this person's question centers around the iron content. We measure iron and pH and DIB reflux drum water boot, but due to low water accumulation, uh, they rarely change. What other monitoring operating parameters can gauge the alkaline wash drum neutralization performance? 
caustic usage. Uh, we do not have the water wash drum. We have an acid and alkaline wash drum. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd have to ask, because I didn't really say they had a problem. Um, so if their iron doesn't change and they don't have a problem, then mm -hmm. all is good. But I'm assuming if they're asking a question, uh, you know, they might be having a problem. Um, I would hope not, but yeah, that does sound it. Um, maybe uh, get in contact with, uh, with the two of you and see what uh, other information they have they can share uh, more directly. Yeah, he, so he asked specifically about caustic usage, and we would tend to look at the trend for caustic usage just right. to see if it's gone up or down. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly how much acid or acidic species you have to neutralize. Mm -hmm. So... There's not like a direct, oh, for this barrel of uh, throughput in the algae, you're going to have this amount of acid to neutralize. So it's not like you have some target there. It's more just the trend and seeing how that behaves. Okay. So maybe have some further in-contact discussion with you guys and, yep. and see where that goes. Okay. Um, this person, this was the person that put his, uh, their question in right first thing. Mm -hmm. So they had this uh, on their mind. If you have a contactor leak, would you expect the small knockout pot under the suction trap drum to allow you to stay in operation if you can keep after the level build in the pot? And it's a multi-part, so I'll start with that one. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Easy answer. All right. Would you expect acid to get in the refrigeration system, even if you have a good demister? No. No. Okay. All right. Have you heard of a compressor after cooler leak, after running with this extra acid carryover from a contactor leak, uh, even though the acid is being handled in a small pot? So I guess maybe let's walk it back a little bit and talk about the fundamentals. Um, sure. So we have acid and hydrocarbon that is needing to be separated within the settler. Mm -hmm. And then the hydrocarbon, which is hopefully no acid present, flows to a suction trap or some sort of flashing vessel where the vapor goes to the compressor and then the liquid goes on to effluent treating. Mm -hmm. So off of that vessel is the knockout pot and the knockout pot should have some acid filling up as, as the tube leak is progressing. So you should be able to stay on top of that. The issue can be if sites have been operating for a long time and are far over their design capacity, you may have either really low residence time for the liquid or not enough disengagement time for the vapor. Right. And so if you're at those really high rates and you have some sort of phenomena, we have seen this at another site. Um, I know the asker of this question, so I can say that okay. it's not at, not at his site, but <laughs> at another site, we've seen it where they have had some acid present, maybe in the compressor case, or um, they've seen that more at like a turnaround, not necessarily all the way to the condensing system for a tube leak. But gotcha. if you don't have enough disengagement time and that acid is somehow being swept up into the compressor and on through that system, yes, it has been seen before. Okay. All right. And it, it sounds like maybe part of the equation here is running the system beyond its original design mm -hmm. too. So it could be a number of different issues, but sounds like more discussion uh, would be good for that uh, directly <laughs> with Cater. Uh, or Randy, go ahead, Randy. Right, right, right. I'm just going to say, just generally, we don't see corrosion in the refrigeration mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. You yeah. might see if if there is acid getting carried <laughs> over, it'll cake on the it can cake on the on the compressor itself, or end up down downstream in the condensers. But 
generally because it's dry, we don't see corrosion there. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. All right, let's change pace a little. Uh, are acid, uh, neutral acid esters still a phenomena uh, best controlled with temperature? I think it's one of the knobs that we have. So mm -hmm. um, kind of the knobs are the, the mixing delta P, the flow rates going through the mixer, mm -hmm. the, the pH or the caustic strength and the temperature. Mm -hmm. And generally you can't just go and change your delta P of your mixer easily. If you, know, if you have to replace the static mixer, that's not something an engineer or operator can go do right away. Now, right. some of our units have a globe valve downstream of the static mixer. Mm -hmm. And in that case, let's say they, they used to run at 12 pounds and now they're at eight pounds. If they dial in four or five pounds on that downstream globe valve, they're kind of back to where they started. Right. So if you're fortunate enough to have a globe valve, that is a knob you can, you can turn in the field. Sure. So, so really the, if you don't have that though, then the knobs typically are temperature circulation rate, um, you know, and, and maybe strength. Um, okay. You know, yeah, some units, um, you know, generally if it's strong caustic, it it tends to be more forgiving than than alkaline water, but again, then you waste more um, caustic in your effluent streams as well. Okay. Uh, just a couple more here. Uh, both of these have to do with the dry system because they mentioned the alumina. So um, let me start with this one. What do you test for to determine if the alumina bed is spent? So that's a, that's a great question. Um, okay. So as Kate said, there's really, there's four units out there right now and they do different things. One will just regenerate on a, or not regenerate, dump on a fixed schedule. So it's every six months. Um, other ones look at sulfur and they're, as long as their sulfur, their alkalate sulfur is, is okay. Mm -hmm. That's when they change it out. Um, so alkalate sulfur is probably the, the biggest uh, thing to look at if it, starts out at one or two, and then it, it starts creeping up over time, they, uh, that's, that's when they would know to change it out. Okay. Um, All right. I don't know, Kate, if you have anything else to, to add to that? Nope, that would be my answer as well. All right. Uh, and how do you know if the uh, AI treater is spent? Uh, we kind of talked about that. Uh, is there a test on the outlet stream to indicate that the AI is spent? Yeah, that's basically the same question. Basically the same question. Yeah. Okay, cool. Oh, and uh, this person just put theirs in. Uh, since you mentioned the globe valve, uh, is it better to have the mix valve upstream or downstream of the mixer? That's a great question. We say downstream because we want the static mixer to kind of do the pre-mixing and get it, you know, as, as mm -hmm. homogenous as you can before it hits a, you know, a, a mix valve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that's our preference. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing too, to mention is, is the static mixers do have a proper orientation, meaning that when the stream goes into it, the, the heavy aqueous stream will tend to be on the bottom of the pipe coming in. Sure. And you can, you can orient the first. So basically each, if there's five elements, they're going this way, this way, this way, we kind of want the first element to be in the vertical so that the, the aqueous kicks up and the, mm -hmm. the lighter hydrocarbon kicks down. If you yep. have it oriented this way, they just go side to side in the first mixer and it's, and it's worthless. It's worthless, yeah. Yep. Um, so another thing too that, I, that I'd like to mention is on, when there's like an alkaline water wash static mixer, mm -hmm. the, the hydrocarbons cool 85 degrees, let's say, and the aqueous is hot 
160, 180 Fahrenheit. So if you put your hand on the top of the static mixer at the inlet and the bottom, it should feel a lot hotter on the bottom and cooler on the top. And as you progress through the static mixer, it should be homogenous. It should yeah. be the same temperature. If it's not, that means your static mixer's not doing a good job. Right. And if you have a, a FLIR camera, yep. uh, an IR Infrared. camera of some sort, mm -hmm. that, that does wonders. You can just take a picture of it. You can say, hey, this static mixer is not working well. Yeah, exactly. That's so borrow, borrow one of those, go out there, and, and, or just use your hand. If you can't mm -hmm. tell the difference, you know, maybe it's three or four degrees difference. You may not be able to tell that differential. That's probably good enough. But if it's 20 degrees differential uh, between top and bottom of the outlet of the mixer, then you got a problem there. Yep, that's a great tip. All right. Well, that seems to, to head off all the questions. I'm glad uh, both you, uh, Randy and Kate, were able to join us for the Q&A session. It'd be very difficult for me to answer the questions, of course, <laughs> but it's always best to have the experts. But, uh, you know, so uh, next month, we're going to be talking about Dynawave reverse jet scrubbing technology. And uh, we're going to have another one of our experts who's been on our show several times, Sarah, uh, Safari, uh, join us to talk about the Donna Waves use and how to best operate them. We look forward to, to assisting you in any way we can, and we, we definitely uh, want to encourage you to come back whenever you have an opportunity to join us again for our next pit stop. And with that said, see you till next month in our next pit stop. Thanks, Doug. All right, Thanks. Thank you.